you're not just telling it to other people. You're telling it to yourself too. You're telling yourself a story that's either helping you claim an identity you want or negotiate an identity that you did not choose. We tell stories to build community, not break it. What do I need to be able to tell my stories? And what do I need to be able to hear other people's stories? It's been a while, but we're back with season three to explore a topic that's been two years in the making. In this episode, I talk with the former director of education for The Moth about why we tell stories and what makes for a good story in the first place. This is Change the Narrative, the podcast about innovation in work, life, and culture. I'm your host and tour guide, Michael Hernandez. I'm not sure if you can hear this or not. Let me turn up the volume a bit. There it is. That is the sound of a freshly baked loaf of sourdough bread cooling on my kitchen counter. As the 450-degree loaf hits room temperature, it contracts, causing the crust to crack and make that delicious sound. The cold air of the pandemic had the same effect. It stopped the heat of the world in its tracks, revealing cracks in society and our personal lives that were hidden not so far beneath the surface. Racism, poverty, inadequate health care and child care, homelessness, Without work, sports bars, friends, or retail therapy to distract us, we were confronted with demons we'd failed to deal with for so long. And it struck close to home, too. My daughter struggled with school and social life during her last two years of high school. Close friends were victims of intimate partner abuse. We were lucky to get through without losing our jobs and loved ones. And as I worked with my students on creative projects, I realized how integral the arts are to our mental health because they help us process difficult events and establish emotional stability. When everything in the world is constantly in flux, making and creating gives us a sense of control and a way to bring beauty into a world that desperately needs it. I think being knocked down a notch or two by the pandemic also helped me become more empathetic toward others, helped me see how much we really do need one another for friendship and support and even basic survival. For a while, It was a kinder world, where joy came not from swiping credit cards or posting vacation photos on Instagram, but from eating dinner with the entire family at the table, or remembering how to garden and cook, taking back city streets for walking and cycling, and delivering a warm, fresh loaf of bread to neighbors. Michaela Bly, PhD, is an award-winning storyteller, educator, and story editor based in Portland, Maine. She's a two-time Moth Grand Slam winner and former director of education at The Moth. She teaches storytelling nationwide, including at the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies in Portland, Maine. She is currently at work on her forthcoming audio memoir. Michaela, this is such an honor to have you with us on the show. I'm a big fan of yours um, from the first time. Oh, it is so great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I think the first time I met you was at South by Southwest a couple of years ago where you were giving a workshop on storytelling. And yep, uh, it was right. amazing. Yeah, it was for the moth. And it was amazing because, uh, you know, I've taught storytelling for like 20 years, but the way you framed it and the ideas you brought in were so revolutionary for me. It was really refreshing. So thanks. <laughs> oh, that's really cool to hear. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah, yeah. I feel like um, South by Southwest EDU is one of those places where you really get to f- find new angles on the things you've always been doing in this really cool way. So this is really interesting because um, I decided to dedicate the whole season to storytelling. And um, I feel like storytelling sometimes has a sort of negative connotation, like it's childish or it's frivolous or something and not something that we should take seriously. And so I kind of have to admit feeling a little embarrassed when talking to my colleagues and professionals about it, like they won't take me seriously. Do you ever feel like that? So I've been doing this work for, I guess, nine years, almost 10 years now. and. Over the course of that time, it's changed. That in the beginning, if you said you did storytelling, people said, oh, that's so cute. Do you mean like fairy tales, right? (laughs) They had this idea of what you were doing. Um, And to be clear and to, to sort of define my terms, I do personal narrative performance, right? I do telling stories about my life on stage and I coach and talk about 
applications of that work in other places. So I help people tell those stories and that kind of thing. So, so it's not fairy tales, although I love fairy tales. Uh, but there was always that little bit of stigma early on. And then something happened where um, corporate America kind of got a hold of the term storytelling and marketers and advertising agencies and brand strategists and online media, like all these and PR people and everyone started going, oh, what's your story? What's your story? And you would, you would get, um, you would get business cards from people that they would say their name storyteller and it could mean anything. I mean, they could be, they could be in charge of IT and they were just the IT storyteller and, and that it became a really popular term to talk about and a really powerful term in, in certain spaces. And so I think it sort of changed the connotation of even what I do uh, so that people are, there's a more flexibility to the term because there are still, and of course always will be these venerated folk storytellers and performance artists and those things. But then storytelling also has this really other connotation. That's really great. Um, Is that a problem that they call themselves storytellers? I mean, it's kind of funny if it's an IT guy. Um, Yeah. I mean, I'm being, I'm being facetious about the (laughs) IT guy, but yeah, no, I, you know, it's interesting. There it's, I find it very funny. I remember seeing a short video about a roller coaster designer. There's some really famous roller coaster designer and he's being interviewed about his work. And I'm sure he's a very good roller coaster designer, but he's talking about how every roller coaster is a story and he's the storyteller. And I remember thinking, I don't really, like I understand there's an arc to a, to a roller coaster. There is a beginning, middle, and end. <laughs> literally, an arc. <laughs> literally an arc. Um, but does that make him a storyteller? I don't know. Does, is every single thing a story? I don't know. So that's where I sort of hit against the limits of it. But yeah. Wow. Okay. So you actually started your career as a third grade teacher. I um, did. Yeah. And so what is it about stories that you find so interesting and compelling that you left the classroom and dedicated your entire professional life to storytelling? <laughs> well, um, I didn't actually leave the classroom for storytelling. I left the classroom for grad school and uh, I left to go get my PhD. But my research topic when I started grad school was not storytelling. It was actually, well, it was in a way, um, it was creating framing dramas for elementary students to, to have sort of situated imaginary worlds in which to do their work. I was really interested in, you know, we get a letter from an imaginary character who needs our help and our curriculum is, is part of giving them help. And I wanted to help other teachers design that. But when I left teaching to go to grad school, I was really interested in teacher education and, and creative teacher development. And I could finally stay up late enough to go out on a weeknight. That was the big difference between uh, teaching elementary school and going to grad school was I could go to a show that would end at 11 o'clock because when <laughs> I was teaching third grade, I had to be in bed by 10, you know, I mean, you know. So, um, so one of the first things I did was my friend took me to a storytelling night, like a night of, of people telling true personal stories. And that was sort of a turning point for me. That was this moment. Um, I went to this show I put my name in the hat to tell a story, but I didn't think I'd get called. And I was the first person called. And I got up before I'd ever even seen anyone do it and told a five-minute story from my life. And so that moment sort of was this like, oh, I'm really interested in what happens here. The, The audience feels so connected to each other and to the storyteller. There's all this stuff happening. So that sort of shifted what I found interesting and what I wanted to to look at. And, and that was the moth, right? Yeah, that was a, that was a moth story slam. So there are, there are these competitive open mic nights that I used to go to. Yeah. That are all over the world now, actually. They're, they're in tons and tons of cities. Yeah. And so you actually uh, graduated and became, uh, you attended the moth grand slam and won twice. That's pretty impressive. I did. I like to say that I did not do sports in high school. So I'm a varsity storyteller. That is, <laughs> that is all the winning I do. <laughs> That's incredible. I kind of gave myself a challenge to, to do one of those one time. Uh, yeah. I think it was like maybe two near New Year's ago. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> and I haven't made that resolution happen yet. Um, 
But I mean, what got into your mind? What made you say, I want to stand in front of a crowd of hundreds of strangers and tell a personal story about my life? I'll tell you something. The secret weapon is being a teacher. We do this all the time. We get up in front of a bunch of people who are not sure how they're going to take it when we say what we're going to say. And we're listening really carefully to see how they're engaged. And we're switching tactics when we think it might not work that way. And we're listening really closely to how things are going. And that, that's a really powerful muscle that educators have built. And it serves really well in the performance arena in this way, in, in this kind of storytelling. That's the thing that I found. And every storyteller has different styles, right? But I am a really conversational storyteller. I'm really there with the audience. I think that's a really important piece of it. And it should and does at its best feel like a conversation where one person happens to be the one talking, right? And so, yeah, so I think that's the, the, the when I found, and I had done theater in the past, and I had done improv, uh, comedy improv specifically as well. And I'm not a very good actor. I mean, I was in plays, but I was never great. <laughs> and as an improviser, I'm okay. I can, I, can, I can do it. But what I really loved was when I was hosting and introducing the games. So that was sort of my favorite part was being myself in front of a bunch of people and telling them something. And so it all sort of came together in this, in being a storyteller in this way where I could be as funny as I wanted to be. I could talk about myself in a pretty self-deprecating way and find ways to connect with people. I could decide what I wanted to tell and not tell, which is very important as well. Um, and I'm actually someone who has a fair amount of social anxiety. So hmm. being, a per being a performer and standing up in front of crowds is easier for me than talking to two or three people. Wow, that's amazing. Um, it seems sort of ironic, but is it like a, a Brady Bunch episode or something where someone has a fear <laughs> of public speaking and you have to imagine the, all the cliches, right? I know, I'm not going to go there, but um, like fight fire with fire. Like if you have a fear of public speaking, the way to solve it is public speaking? No, no, I don't have a fear of public speaking. I adore public speaking. I'm actually, it's, 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 it's my comfort zone versus if I'm at a party having a conversation with one to two other people I will walk away from that conversation and worry about every single thing I just said. Like, was that okay? Was that okay? Did I ask them enough about themselves? Hmm. Did, did they think that I was rude when I said this or that? I, I'm so in my head about it. But when I'm, when I'm having a conversation with a crowd, there's something much safer about that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, it's, it's something I've thought about a lot because I think I, I, I do get that question a lot. Being someone with anxiety who likes to get in front of people feels like a, an oxymoron a little bit, but um, I think there's more than, than a few of us. I think, I think this might be a type. I think I can count myself into that group as well. Really? Um, oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. I'm glad that you brought that up. So I don't feel so alone anymore. Um, <laughs> that's funny. Do you, do, you, do you feel that same way about sort of crowds are easier than smaller groups? Is that... I do. I, there, it's almost, I mean, you definitely connect with an audience, but there's almost like an anonymity to it. You know, I think when you're in a very small, intimate group of a couple of people or five people, um, there's more, I don't know, ownership or like you're right there in front of them to be judged or, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, perseverating over something you've said or done or, or whatever. I totally agree. And then if you go up on stage, here's a bunch of strangers, you do your thing and you walk away. And you don't have to see them. And so there's like a sort of safety in that. Absolutely. And there's something that happened actually the first year I went to South by Southwest EDU. You know, I went by myself. I didn't know anybody. I was going to do a playground talk. This was, I think, three or four years ago. And um, as part of my playground talk, I was going to tell a personal story because it was about, I was talking about storytelling. And so I told a story about myself. And then for the rest of the conference, people would come up to me and say, hey, I saw your talk. Can I talk to you about that thing? Or, hey, I have that, you know. And so it was almost like I had a little bit of safety built in of I didn't have to go up and introduce myself to people. They kind of already felt like they knew me a little bit. And so there was a frame to talk about and stuff like that. So it was really, it, it helped a lot to have gotten to be in front of a crowd before sort of trying to network and do all the things that we tried to do at that conference. Wow, it's interesting. So it's like you've built that bridge of empathy and connection to people you had no idea that you did that with. 
it's such a shortcut, you know, because you get to choose how you want to connect to the person and you get to, I mean, I'm really big on, we get to choose what story we tell. We get to own the story we tell. We get to choose which parts we tell. When I work with high school students, that's a huge part of my conversation with them. And when they're working with each other on their stories and helping each other shape and craft their stories, they get really close in a way that they've identified to me in the past. It sort of feels unique, feels different than becoming friends um, because they're able to find these shortcuts into real things in their lives, real ways that they think and see, and they don't have to go through all the small talk to get there. Hmm. Sort of a focused purpose behind the small talk because if it's not small, it's like for a purpose, right? There's something going on. Yeah, that's really interesting. You're working on something. You're working on something together. Well, that's really cool. I want to go back to something you said earlier about um, being the third grade teacher, being a good storyteller and the improv piece of that. Like, yeah, it's this interesting interplay between like, I mean, you've got your story and it's in your head and the audience has no idea what you're going to say, but then you're like feeding off of them. So you're immediately taking back a response and adjusting based on their feedback. And I feel like that's a valuable skill for anybody in any kind of work or business is like, I mean, frame it in the business world, you know, you're like, you get feedback from customers, like here's our product, I'm putting it out there and seeing how people use it differently than I intended. You know, if you're a product designer um, or, uh, you know, they're giving you some kind of feedback to improve the product and uh, it's sort of this iteration process. And that's really interesting to to frame storytelling like that. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I think like when it's, you know, frozen in a book, you don't necessarily get that chance, but when you're in live forms or mm-hmm. these mm-hmm. ongoing like social media conversations and streams that um, you do have that opportunity, it's really fascinating that the story can evolve depending on who's there and, and how everyone's feeling. What you just said feels really important, that idea that stories evolve, right? And that they're not always the same story. So what's frozen in a book is, okay, someone's going to either connect to it or they're not. But one of the things that I came across in my research that I've I still talk and think a lot about is this idea of situated story, which is this, uh, it was um, a a researcher named Kristen Langelier. I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, but it was back in the late eighties that she started writing about it, but basically talking about um, the, the sort of political and social ways that we tell stories in conversation, just, she was talking as a sociologist and I think she's a sociologist. I should double check. But anyway, the idea was that when you tell a story, you're telling it to a specific person in a specific place with a specific intent, and that you're going to tell the same story differently to someone else. So if you're telling the story about, you know, your dad was just, um, your dad just did a really, uh, he just like won a chess tournament. He's like a chess champion. And you're telling that story in a job interview. It's going to be really different than the way you tell it to your best friend out to drinks. Although why you're bragging about your dad out to drinks, I'm not sure. But you know what I mean. But it's, it's always going to be a little different. Or if you're, talking, if you're telling a story about a date, you're going to tell it differently to your parents than you are to your best friend or your sister. Um, and that idea that things change, to me, is incredibly freeing, right? Because it means there's no right way to tell the story. There's just the best way right now to these people in this room. and it also makes the audience really important. And to me, one of the reasons people are so into storytelling is it's this really great way to engage people, engage listeners, engage readers, engage audiences, customers, whoever. The best way to engage someone is to make them feel necessary in the room, that they've got to be there for this to happen. Mm -hmm. And so when what you're telling them is the thing that you're telling to specifically them, not a rehearsed monologue, not something that you know kills in the room, right? you're really talking to them, then they are going to lean forward. They're going to realize that they're a necessary part of this equation. And there's some, that, to me, that's, that's a little bit the secret sauce. That's the thing that starts to happen is when an audience realizes they had to be there, they're present, they're with you, they're in it, you know? That's really interesting. I love this idea of connection and concern for the audience. Um, yeah. I also wonder, I can hear people thinking like, oh my gosh, so I can change my story, right? And there's like definitely scientific and political ramifications for a slip sliding sort of set of, of facts or events and, and the order of them. And 
you know, thinking about the era that we live in, you know, thinking about our political environment, the Me Too movement, um, you know, all these conversations we're having in a political world. Like, is there yeah. a danger? Do you see that as like being sort of a danger? I mean, I totally agree with you, but is I, this like a dangerous position to take? I think it's, I think what, what you just said is really interesting, but less related to this idea of situated story, um, in, in my mind at least, because to my mind, the way I change a story according to audience is not, this is what this audience wants to hear. So I'm going to change what happened in the story to match what they want to hear. And that's lying, right? That's um, actually not telling a true story. I, I think that that idea is, I mean, anything powerful can be used for good or ill, right? Which is why even at the beginning of our conversation, we're saying, oh yeah, marketers got a hold of the idea of story. Mm -hmm. And if I can tell a compelling enough story about why this company is so important, no one's going to notice that this company is dumping all the oil in the ocean, right? Mm -hmm. That, that it, you know, it can be used, it can be used to great manipulation. But also I think that I, what you're talking about with sort of misinformation and, and all of the ways that people can sort of manipulate and use that to me, it's the reason to study this stuff because it's dangerous. The idea that, that story can be used to manipulate and can create this sort of slippery slope of truthiness or whatever you want to call it. Studying this stuff lets us be critical of it and lets us understand when we're contributing to a dominant narrative, how we can create counter stories, stories that are going to sort of surface the things that we don't usually talk about, all of those pieces. Learning about it is necessary first to me. That's such a great point. And, you know, I'm fascinated with media literacy and teach about it all the time. And so it's mm. definitely something that's like you, you have to engage with and understand how it's put together and formulated so you can better identify it and be uh, cognizant of what you are creating yourself. You know, it's sort of interesting, like we do have this world where right now I feel like in the classroom, I see this in education a lot. We have this emphasis on student voice and we're like, oh, let's, let's hear everyone's story. And I feel like, in the, again, in the political realm, then it's echoed down the chain down to the kids is, you know, everybody's story matters. And while that's true on, on some levels, I worry about um, people who tell stories that are misinformed. You know, you have like 16 year olds or 20 year olds or whoever, like 50 year olds that are uninformed um, or intentionally, you know, misleading. And, you know, how can we balance the need to hear many voices yet at the same time encourage an ethics of storytelling? I think it's a great question. I, I think an ethics of storytelling is such a cool phrase actually. And building a framework for um, before telling stories in a classroom, before telling stories in a group, making that community agreement, understanding with each other, what do I need to be able to tell my stories and what do I need um, to be able to hear other people's stories? And it might be about setting up a framework or a protocol for if someone says something that you're not comfortable with, what, what happens then? And deciding as a class or a group, what happens then? so that there's an understanding and also um, setting boundaries on what we can't do, right? That hate speech doesn't have a place in storytelling in this community. That uh, if you're going to be negating the perspective of someone else, or you're going to be contradicting the perspective of someone else, uh, that there's certain things that have to happen. If you're going to tell a story that involves someone else or a group of people that are not you, you're going to have to ask their permission and not just ask their permission, but tell them the story you're going to tell them. Hmm. So, you know, sometimes um, I would, again, in, in, in teaching high school and teaching storytelling to high school students and, and working with them with this, I'd sometimes get um, a student who'd say, oh, I'm going to tell a story about um, the hugest fight I had with a girl who was formerly my best friend and how she was completely wrong and how unjust she was and how I was right. And I will say, great, does she know you're telling the story? And has she given you permission? So before you tell it, you should check with her and let her know because she doesn't have the mic and you do. And the answer is sometimes, oh, she would never let me tell the story. I'm not speaking to her currently. So, okay, well, that's a good indication that this is not a story, right? We tell stories to, and, and part of it is around the goal. If this, We tell stories to build community, not break it. So if what you're going to tell is going to fracture the community in some way, then that is a conversation that we have to have. If what you're going to tell can build community by connecting us to your experience and all, all those pieces, then that's a part of it too. That's such great advice. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, like, 
what if, you know, these new voices, these underrepresented voices that um, we want to hear um, end up, you know, sort of unintentionally like offending people. Like I, I can imagine in some communities or cultures, uh, even, you know, these concepts that, that, uh, you know, a lot of progressive people think are just normal, you know, uh, right. gender identity issues or race or even like economics and stuff. Like, you know, it can be very offensive to people to hear that because it contradicts their worldview. Um, yeah. How do we balance that? Like, okay, I'm going to offend you, but this is my reality. I don't know. I mean, what do you think? I, I, I think it's a really interesting question around, around, I mean, especially if we're talking specifically about classrooms, it's, I feel like that's a larger question about classroom community. Have you, has that come up, come up for you? It, I mean, you you do a lot of work that's deeply personal with students. What is it? What does that end up being like for you? Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of depends. We do set up those frameworks about uh, being very intentional and trying to anticipate right. the reaction you're going to have with an audience. Um, I remember years ago when I first started teaching, there were parents who um, didn't like the, the films we were watching and critiquing because I teach cinema as well as journalism and Mm -hmm. uh, disagreed politically with them. And so pulled their daughter out. And, you know, I I see that as, um, I don't think what we were doing was anything controversial. Um, It's the equivalent of like banning books or boycotting a class because you're reading, you know, Huck Finn or or something like that. Um, And there's definitely conversations to have around, you know, texts like that and who wrote them and um, are you being representational of the authors um, I welcome those conversations, but um, so I, I feel like, and in conversations recently, actually with, we're doing a panel for South by Southwest on student activism, and we've been asking students like, why are you, what holds you back from being an activist? In other words, maybe telling their story in some kind of way to people to get them to change behavior or policy. And a lot of them are afraid of offending other people because they fear the backlash. And um, I just fear, they feel like we've got to this point where we can't have a a civil conversation and people are afraid of their worldview being challenged. Um, and you know, we're often wrong, <laughs> you know, we're always wrong in our lives. Right, um, right. And so how do you ever solve any problem or address anything simply by putting a name on it to start with, just calling it out and telling a story about something and say, Hey, here's this thing that's happening. Not necessarily even offering a solution, but, um, and so I, I feel like that's a very dangerous place to be in as a culture and a society. Um, and so I, very gingerly, I guess, I try to, you know, case by yeah. case, like walk the kids through like in a personal level and try to tap into like their personal experience and connect their personal life experience to what the story is that they want to tell and how right. to make a connection to that. I think, I think that's so great. And I think also this idea of being afraid of what effect my words will have and, and having to anticipate all of that, to me, there's something really interesting and and that that holds a lot of potential around having a group of students helping one another figure out what the effect will be outside of that group of students so that there's almost layers of so it's not it has to stay in my head because Mm. what if I say it to just another person as a as a first draft of something and it ends up being a disaster but if there's a, a way for me to say okay I have take backsies on this but I want to try this out and can you tell me what effect this would have and that you've got a trusted person who is going to say, yeah, you know, I mean, this, this is a, there's a perfect example of this actually in a, in a recent um, team that I coached, a uh, storytelling team that I coached, where um, a kid was telling a story about a breakup and he was really concerned. He was genuinely concerned. He did not want to portray the girl in any way that would be unfair to her. He was really, really like very sensitive about this. but he also is inside of his perspective as her ex-boyfriend. So he's got his own stuff going on. So he brought it to his team before he did it in a larger show for the whole school where he said, can I, can I try this out? And then some of the people on the team were like, yeah, you sound real mad and you're making her sound a little crazy. So if you add some stuff about the qualities you loved about her, then you're going to be more even handed and it's not going to feel like you're attacked. You know, they were able to like get inside of his perspective and help him think through, which I think is a really important lesson in general. How do I think through the effects of my words? And if he decides, but I, that's what I want to do, then he's got to accept the consequences of that, right? He's like going in, you know, they're his mistakes to make maybe. But like you say, taking it case by case, but also 
I think building trusted partners and, and building frameworks to have trusted partnerships around help me figure this out so that I can make mistakes. Because I think the only way we can do it is if we're able to make those mistakes in a way that we don't fear will permanently damage our, you know, that won't cancel us. Uh, if, there's a, if there's a person or people that we can try things out with and see how that works. I love that. I love that idea of collaborative storytellers um, or trusted editors and reviewers yeah. that people you can respect their opinion on. Um, I, I love that idea a lot. And, you know, we do that sort of in the structure of journalism, but um, I wonder in the rest of education, do we provide that? You know, it's often deemed cheating. You know, if right. you're relying on somebody else to, you're supposed to generate everything uniquely yourself in your own head. And that never happens in the real world. Yeah. And I'm a social constructivist. I mean, we, we learn by talking it through with people and God, I never even thought about what you're saying is, is so real. Identifying, identifying those editors is a real world skill. We're not, we don't just create things in our brains. My niece is 10 and she is a novelist. She's a really, really good writer. And she wrote, she, she, she's, she's on her third novel, I think now. And these are like wow. 80 page chapter books. I mean, these wow. are real with like an arc and the whole situation. And she really develops characters. And her first one was kind of straight up Harry Potter fan fiction, but with goblins instead of Harry Potter. And I remember her bringing it to me and she was eight. She brought it to me and she said, I need help. Um, I don't know. It, it's not doing what I want it to do. It's spring for too long. Like it's springtime for too long. And also I want you to know it's the villain before the main character knows it's the villain. How do I do that? Wow. And I said, okay, I'll be your editor. And we sat down and we had an editor meeting. Was I an adult like making her book? No, she wrote it. I, I just said to her, if you start letting buds come out on the leaves at the beginnings of these two chapters, then you're going to let it be spring sooner. And um, uh, you're actually already telling us who the villain is because you're letting his voice be very gravelly and you're letting us know you're, you're showing him sneaking out of places. So I'm having an idea as a reader. I just reacted to, to it as, as a, a reader and told her what the effect was on someone who wasn't inside of the story. And that's what an editor does. And she's learning it so early. And that idea that, you know, she's, she's got it. She's doing it on her own, but she's going to be able to trust someone to get inside of her work with her. That's amazing. Wow. What a talent. <laughs> it's so cool. Yeah, and to have that relationship with your niece. That's fantastic. <laughs> it's really fun, actually. Yeah. So my niece and nephew both are really amazing. That's really interesting. So I'm really curious about the process of how to craft a good story. And I know this is what you do in workshops and all that stuff, but yeah, you've talked about this idea of improv and storytelling, which is fascinating for live stuff. Um, but I've always thought of like storytelling uh, as something that's very carefully planned out. You know, you outline it, um, you have to organize Absolutely. and revise. Um, and uh, I know there's like, what role do you think improv plays in it? Um, or, yep. or this conversation you have with trusted colleagues um, or peers about that? Yeah, I think that's funny that we talked so much about improv that we didn't, we sort of took it for granted that yes, it's a crafted story. So there's something to me in between a written monologue or a memoir you read aloud and a completely off the cuff improvised story. And so how I do it is um, I, I really go with um, almost chapter titles. So I, I'll, for a five minute story, I might have, you know, 10 or 12 sort of points I know I'm going to hit and I might have lines that I know I'm going to say that I that I think work really well and when I'm working on a story I might write it out but then leave what I wrote out I'm not going to tell it exactly that way and so what happens is you have the path you know where you're going you maybe you know your first line and your last line and maybe you know some lines in between but you have a path that you're going through and you sort of know how you're going to get there but what's really cool to me about this kind of storytelling, which ends up feeling very conversational, is that we already do it. We tell stories over and over all the time. You have your favorite stories you tell, and so do I. And you, when you tell your favorite stories, the ones that you know really work, like when you're at a big dinner and the subject of, you know, um, terrible airport sushi comes up, you have your like 
anecdote ready about terrible airport sushi, right? And you know which parts are, and the first time you told it, it probably wasn't a great anecdote. It probably went on a little too long and you just were like sort of rambling. And then, and then the second time and third time and fourth time you told it, you kind of figured out where the good laugh lines were and you got to the point much quicker because you knew that people got bored at the beginning. So you're doing, you were doing it anyway. And that's really all to me, this kind of storytelling is. By the time there's stories that I've told in front of countless high schools and hundreds of shows. I mean, there's, there's a couple of stories that I've probably told 200 times because I tell them in the beginning of workshops. I tell them in assemblies and all these things. They're always a little different, but at this point they're kind of locked in there. It's, and the game becomes, how do you stay present to the person, to, to the, to the story itself? Um, but when you're first starting a story, you are kind of improvising your way through it because you really, it's just like you're telling a story at a party and figuring out which parts work. That's amazing. I'm, I think I'm stuck at the rambling point. I don't think I can get past, <laughs> past that to figure out the punchlines. Uh, <laughs> I'm definitely an organizer, outliner, reader of previously thought out things. My hand just yeah, doesn't yeah. work there. <laughs> um, well, and everyone's different, right? There are some storytellers who write it out word for word. It's word perfect. Um, and, yeah. that's, and that's the way they need to do it. It's, per- it's beautiful. Right. So maybe we should back up for a second and yeah. to sort of define story. What is a story? Well, so the kind that we're talking about right now, the kind that I've been, the kind that I've been working on for the last um, however many years, is, you know, a true personal story of something that happened to you, true as remembered by the teller, and maybe five to ten, maybe twelve minutes long. So that's sort of what, what I talk about when I talk about storytelling. However, I, that is not the only way that stories happen, of course. And I think that that be, can become the beginnings of many other kinds of stories. Um, and, you know, we were talking earlier, you and I, in a previous conversation about sort of digital storytelling and online media, those kinds of things. And that's one thing. And then there's, um, sort of written story and how this kind of storytelling can translate to that. And I think that, that what, what makes a good story is a whole other question, right? So what's it, how do we define story is one thing. And then um, how do we, what is a story that works? And some people say, oh, it has a beginning, middle, and an end. I think, sure, yes. Um, <laughs> more essentially to me, a story has some kind of internal framework, has some kind of shape, that it's not just here's some stuff, that there's a, there's a reason that it starts and a reason that it ends, which is maybe what they mean by beginning, middle, and end, right? But it doesn't have to be the, sh- the shape that Aristotle said, you know? And I think that, that really good personal stories take you into someone else's world, take you into someone else's perspective, show you something, show you scenes, help you understand why this was important to them. That's fantastic. And I feel like stories are shifting so much, like with um, Netflix and all of this binge watching and stuff. It's almost as if there is no beginning, middle and end. It's just like atmosphere for like 13 episodes and 13 hours. And then you just like stop. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Or wish you had the next season. Like, I don't know. How do you feel about that? I mean, honestly, I love it. I really do. I feel like I'm, I'm actually in the middle of reading this book of literary criticism right now called Meander Spiral Explode. It's by Jane Allison, and it's design and pattern and narrative. And it's basically talking about the other structures that are not the sort of um, build up, build up, build up, climax resolution, um, which, which many feminists have said is an incredibly male way to structure a narrative. And that there are other ways that things happen. There are other ways that things happen than like build up, build up, build up, blow off. And so <laughs> I mean, there is I'm, a climax, I'm, right? <laughs> there, or, or several. There, this is very off color. Um, but but the, the idea to me that there are other ways to structure a story, and I think that Netflix is one of those ways that... The, Netflix has provided people sort of like the money and the space to do these, these weird experiments in television in general, like good television in general, um, and good, good, good fiction making, I think. Last year, I'd been um, really theorizing all, all over the place about how to make a structure. And what I was most interested in, by the way, was how to make a structure that anyone can fit themselves into and feel confident using. 
So rather than like constricting people, I wanted to give people some like bumpers in bowling so that they could go, oh, I can do this, right? But it was really limiting what I could tell stories about. And I started experimenting with stand-up comedy because stand-up comedy has space for the personal, but there's a whole bunch of stuff that's available to you when you're not required to have a very satisfying beginning and a very satisfactory end. That if it's if you're just structuring things as jokes, like what what are the stories that are available when you're not stuck in a stuck in a form? Um, so I'm a fan, honestly. Yeah, I, at first it gave me a little anxiety because I'm like, oh, three act structure. I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> this is challenging. <laughs> like my idea of what a story actually is, and I love being challenged <laughs> that way. It's pretty cool. Yeah. In all this research you've been doing uh, about storytelling, what have you found exciting in your research? Oh, that's a great question. A couple of things that are sort of my pet theories that I think about the most. And they have to do with this thing we were talking about at the very beginning about this very personal reason I got into this stuff in the first place. One is a researcher named Spectre Mersal, maybe 10 years ago now or 15 years ago she was working, started talking about the ways that we consciously or unconsciously use our stories to forward some end, that we use the details of our stories to paint ourselves as a certain way. And between her work and some other work, I started thinking a lot about this idea that we use story to claim identities, that when we choose the stories we want to tell, Often when you're like, oh, tell a story about anything, you know, in a storytelling workshop or, you know, you're at a party or whatever, the story you choose is often a story that's somehow helping. You're not just telling it to other people. You're telling it to yourself too. You're telling yourself a story that's either helping you claim an identity you want or, and this part, this is the part that I find really fascinating, negotiate an identity that you did not choose that has been assigned to you for whatever reason. So for example, I did a workshop where um, a first uh, a, a student teacher had been asked. He, he student teacher was taking my workshop, and during the workshop, he was asked to take over his head teacher's class, and he was terrified. And the story he chose to tell was a story about the time in high school when he asked a girl out and she said yes. The whole story was about him being brave. The whole story was about him taking a risk, and like stepping into something that he hadn't been. And he thought about it that way. He didn't make the explicit connection to what he, what else was going on in his life, but that was the story he wanted to tell. He had any story available to him, and that was the story he chose. By contrast, um, a woman was also in that same workshop whose father had just passed away. He had been very Orthodox um, Jewish, and she found synagogues all over New Jersey where she could go and say Kaddish for him, say the mourner's prayer for him. And the story was this very elegiac, I mean, really sort of meditative list of all of the places that she had said the mourner's prayer. She was really negotiating being a mourning daughter. That wasn't something she chose. She was just telling a story that let her talk about and kind of do that work that she was talking about having to do. And I think that the stories that we tell and the ways that we tell them really help us build who we wanna be, who we don't wanna be, who we have to be anyway, how we wanna be those people, what we wanna step into. And I'm really interested in that. So that's something that really came up for me that I still think a lot about and I think has a lot of applications for everybody, right? For teachers, for students, for moms, for people in career change, for people in, who are aging, for, you know, so many ways that we change over life and needing to like negotiate and claim the ways that we want to change that we have changed. Feels like a really exciting way that we can use storytelling. That's so beautiful. Wow. I mean, everything comes back to psychology, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's it really so does. wonderful. Like, yeah, like self-talk. Like I, I see that in myself all the time. Like, what does this mean? What am I doing? Like, how do I want people to think of me or perceive my work or um, yeah. what was I, what was I thinking at the time and telling the story in my head to make sense of things. And it seems like that's the sort of fundamental element of storytelling is making sense of the world. 
A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And and what's cool about it is you might not know, you might not know how you're trying to make sense of the world through the story you're telling, but your audience will, you know? They might see it in a way that you don't. You might tell a whole story and be like, I don't know, just a fun story. And they'll be like, oh, that's really about your ability to be a dad. You know, they'll really get it. Um, and I love that too. I know that has happened to me many times. Maybe it's just like being a dumb guy or something, but like, I'm like, <laughs> no, no, uh, I'll say everywhere. something and, and then people are like, oh, that's really powerful. I'm like, oh, wait, what did I say? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's so real. And actually that goes back to what we were talking about, about finding your trusted editors, right? That finding right. the meaning in your story, you don't have to just think and think and think and suddenly you have the meaning in your story. Telling it is what's going to get you there. Yeah. And I often feel like when I tell stories, whether it's, you know, some sort of nonfiction blog post that I'm doing or, or something more substantial, like, like it's the process of the writing that really helps me see and find what's really going on at the core. Like it's not until you start that process of, of of working on it and revising it, um, whether it's with an editor or just with yourself. Um, that's a really fascinating and important process that I've finally figured out, um, is happening and, it's not just therapeutic psychologically, but it's also like to get ideas professionally out too. This is the iteration process. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think that's something that I'm learning right now with the essays I'm writing. You know, I'm writing this sort of, what I'm working on is sort of this um, series of essays that combine memoir and research about storytelling, sort of why I tell the stories I do, but also telling them. It's a little bit the way I teach my workshops is I, I always talk about myself and then we talk about how to do it. and it's exactly right. You don't, you don't know until you see what's on the page and then you're starting to like get towards something and you chip away and iterate and iterate and iterate. Um, tell me about some projects that you're working on right now that you're excited about. I'm super excited about this, this, um, these essays I'm working on right now. Um, I'm super excited about um, a couple of the podcasts that I'm the story editor for uh, brought to you by, which is the, which is insider audios podcast is super fun and weird and I love the team that works on it. It's basically sort of the stories behind the brands that you know. We take famous brands and then sort of talk about their history or interesting things around them. Um, so, and I'm just always learning new weird things. And it's also not a personal narrative podcast, so that's really nice. Also, it's like a little break from personal narrative. <laughs> um, but so the last, the last thing I learned about was um, that there was a point when PepsiCo had the third largest um, naval fleet in the world. Wait, what? Because, yeah, they, Pepsi um, was, was the sole provider of cola to Russia, to the USSR. But the USSR had laws about paying Americans. And so the way they got around it was by paying them in warships. And then Pepsi could sell the warships so that Pepsi would get paid. But so oh Russia just gave them all these warships. And so Pepsi just had like a fleet before they managed to sort of move all their material to like, to sell it. It's just stuff like that. That's incredible. Yeah. I'm in the wrong business. I'm in the wrong business because I have this admiral hat and I don't know what to do with it. (laughs) I feel like you would go really well. I mean, also I love thinking about like the eighties and PepsiCo and like communist Russia trying to sort of find buyers for their warships anyway so I love I love doing that work and I um and I and I love being a story editor because as we talked about being an editor it's it's just like being a story coach um and um I work with another podcast called Family Ghosts um which um I actually did my own episode of that and that's I've been with them since the beginning and they do stories about people exploring stories of their families and how it echoes through their lives so that's a that's a very personal one but I'm really excited to be getting more into audio I think that there's, um, I've always been on those sort of live storytelling side of things and the writing. And um, that's something that's been really, it's been really lovely for me. I think I want to start learning how to edit audio. That's something I recently decided. It's easier than it sounds. Is it? Pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it makes me nervous because it just seems like such an expert thing. But that's very reassuring to hear. Yeah, you figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> the hard part is the cool. is the story. The hard part's the writing. Always the hard part's the writing. You know, I've taught like cinema and journalism forever and it's the yeah. writing and the ideas is the hardest part. Uh the technical pieces you figure out and they come together. Oh, that's so exciting. Because yeah, I really want to do that. I have a podcast that I want to work on with that niece I told you about. Mm. Um I don't know if I've told you about this podcast. Have I told you about this yet? 
No. We've been working on it for years. It's called Ramona and Auntie Mookie are retiring for real. And it's a fictional podcast about two world famous movie directors, Ramona and Auntie Mookie. And the podcast is we are finally retiring from a very long and storied career. And so this is our retrospective where we're going to bring you behind the scenes of our most famous movies. But they're all made up, obviously. So we just get my friends to like tell us movie titles and then we make them up. I love the idea of just like making up a bunch of movies and you don't actually have to film them. You just give a little synopsis. Exactly. That's fantastic. Um, So where can people go to connect with you and find out more about your work? Yeah. So I am one of these people who loves doing anything connected to narrative. I do instructional design and curriculum design and story editing and all these things. And you can see more of my stories. And you can find out more about the kind of work I do or um, talk to me about partnering if you just go to my website. So it's MichaelaBly.com. This is really fun, Michaela. Thank you so much. Yeah. This is so insightful. Oh my gosh. Thank you for having me. This is really wonderful. Find out more about Michaela, including links to her performances at The Moth, on our website, changethenarrative.net. It wasn't that like one day I just switched from being a biologist to a photographer. At the beginning, it was like, oh, this job is going to help me be a better scientist. How do I play with both beauty and curiosity to leave a lasting impression of wonder? Next time on Change the Narrative, I talk with National Geographic photographer Anand Varma, who works at the intersection of art and science. I know this is a podcast, but just wait till you see his images of hummingbirds, bees, and parasites. Plus, he reveals the inspiration for his photography, graphic novels. That's next time on Change the Narrative. Change the Narrative is written and produced by me, Michael Hernandez. If you like the podcast, rate us and write a review. It helps people find us. And don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter. You can find details on our website, changethenarrative.net.